This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by SurePayroll. If you're a small business owner, you know payroll and payroll taxes can be a headache. Well, SurePayroll has changed that by simplifying payroll services with just three easy steps entirely online. To learn more, visit surepayroll.com fool and get a free quote. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, January 23rd, and we're talking big bank earnings. I'm your host, Michael Douglas. Gabby LaPera has a cold. And I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com banking expert, John Maxfield. John, it's good to talk to you again on the podcast. It's been a little while. It has been way too long, Michael. I, I, what, what we were just talking before the show, was it like two years ago that we did this together? <laughs> Something like that. It was really kind of scarily long ago. Um, Fortunately, the podcast has improved. I'm not sure I have, but uh, I, I, I suppose listeners, listen, send us an email at industryfocus at fool.com if you think that uh, uh, with me here, we, we sound reasonably good. You, you know, just just help me out here. Give me a small ego boost. Be kind. Be kind. Yeah, pl- please be kind. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about bank earnings. Um, and, and before we get into specific banks, um, let's talk about kind of the big overall drivers. First one, of course, trading revenue. Yeah, you know what? This uh, this was one of those quarters where just a ton of stuff happened in it. But if there was one thing in particular that impacted bank stocks, it was the presidential election. And the reason the presidential election impacted bank stocks, or at least one of the principal reasons it impacted bank stocks, was because it caused trading revenues at these large universal banks which are banks that have both commercial banking operations and investment banking operations, to soar by double digits on a year-over-year basis. And the reason trading revenue soared on a year-over-year basis as a result of the election was because institutional investors had to reposition their portfolios in the wake of the election because of the unexpected outcome. And anytime you have institutional investors in the market buying and selling different types of securities, Because banks are market makers, i.e. the ones who are facilitating those transactions, and they earn commissions on those transactions, they're going to make a lot more money. And that's the reason, or one of the principal reasons, that it was such a good quarter for these big banks. Right. Uh, And, you know, certainly bank stocks moved a great deal after the election, um, you know, because of expectations of deregulation and perhaps some expectations that things like trading revenue would improve. But this is where we actually get to see some of that kind of follow through to the bottom line, where it's like, yeah, no, trading revenue was boosted actually by quite a bit. Let's also yeah, talk. Yeah, that's a, that's no, a really ahead. good point, actually, Michael, because, you know, if you look at the, the, the stock prices, they shot up like 25, 30 percent. But if you're talking, and that was because of the expectation for like reduced re- regulation and all these things that could happen under the income, or, and I guess it's now the presidential administration. Right. But if you're talking about the fundamentals of the bank, to your point, it, it was the trading revenues. Exactly. Um, let's also talk about uh, short-term and long-term interest rates. And people always talk about interest rates like they're one thing, but you know there are kind of two two different mainstreams to talk about. Yeah, and if you think about banks, right? What are banks? I, the, the way I like to simplify in my own head, because I have a pretty simple mind, <laughs> is that a bank is really nothing more than a retail type of operation, like a retail store. But instead of like a bookstore, which sells books, banks sell money. And interest rates are the price of money, i.e. when you get a loan, a bank is basically selling you that money to use for a time being. The price that you are paying for that is the interest rate on that, right? So as interest rates go up, the price of money goes up. And as the price of money goes up, well, 
so do bank revenues, right? So that is a really good thing. But here's the thing, you know, the banks have been talking now for a few years, you know, waiting for interest rates to come up, you know, hoping for them to come up because profitability in the sector have been, has been so has been so hard, you know. But in the fourth quarter, when they did come up, the short-term rates didn't come up until De uh, December when the Federal Reserve's, uh, their, the, the committee that sets monetary policy, when they decided to increase interest rates, that didn't happen until December. So two-thirds of the way through the quarter, a little bit more than two-thirds of the way through the quarter, long-term interest rates, which also are beneficial to banks, they shot up in the immediate wake of the election, just like bank stocks did. And they shot up actually by quite a bit, by 90 basis points, which you know, if you talk about on a, on a percentage basis, that means 0.9%. Now that doesn't seem like a lot, but if you look at you know all these banks in their regulatory filings put out interest rate sensitivity analyses. And Bank of America said that, look, if short and long-term interest rates increase by 100 basis points, which is almost as how much long-term rates shot up, it would earn $5.3 billion more over the following 12 months in net interest income. And net interest income is really high margin revenue that essentially just falls to the bottom line. And then when you factor in like a bank like Bank of America makes like $5 billion in a quarter, that basically just, just interest rates increasing by one percentage point would basically just give Bank of America a full another quarter of just earnings just on top of what it's already earning. So it is a really big thing. But because they, they came up so late in the quarter, the banks really aren't gonna see that benefit until this year. And that's why, you, I, I think at least, investors can and should feel bullish about bank stocks at this point. Yeah, certainly those year-over-year -year comparisons look like they're going to look pretty darn good for the rest of 17. Of course, no one has a crystal ball and can predict the future, but that's where things look like uh, right now. Um, but an interesting thing about um, about interest rates, and and John, you and I were talking about this a bit before the show. Um, you know, earnings obviously you know improve as interest rates go up, or they tend to. But book value will tend to go down. Why is that? Yeah. So when you think about what is a bank, so it is a highly leveraged investment fund, and in that fund, it holds two different type of assets. On a, I'm speaking very very generally. The one type of asset are loans, right? The other type of assets are fixed income securities, things like you know, 10-year treasury bills, um, uh, mortgage-backed securities that are issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, things like that. Well, as interest rates come up, the value of those securities come down because those securities were issued under lower interest rates. So as the new securities, which are basically fungible, like you know, a 10-year treasury issued you know, in December isn't really, for all intents and purposes, isn't any different than a 10-year treasury issued in October, except for the fact that if the interest rates go up, investors are gonna earn a lot more from those, so they're gonna be willing to pay more, more for those new securities that are issued in a higher interest rate environment. Well, what happens then is that all those securities that were existing and on their portfolio, their prices go down. And so what we saw in the fourth quarter was that, and this is a statistic that Dick Bovey uh, uh, publicized in a recent report, he's a well-known bank analyst, is that if you look at the biggest, you know, 18 of the biggest banks in the United States, the ones that have thus far reported their earnings, their cumulative book values have fallen by between 17 and 18 billion dollars. So now, here's the interesting thing about that. So you think like, oh, well, I mean like, so there's some give and take here, right? right? Higher interest rates are good for the income statement, 
but they're bad for the balance, the balance sheet. But here's what's so interesting about this. Because of where we are right now, and because the way the regulatory environment has unfolded over the last few years, banks have to hold so much capital that it's decreasing, it makes them look less profitable. Because the way that banks' profitability is estimated is through the return on equity calculation, where you have income divided by capital. And if you have more capital, well, then your return on equity is going to go down. So what has happened now is that like, as the, these banks have had to revalue their portfolios down, that is actually going to make them look even more profitable because the return on equity is going to go up. So there's all these different moving pieces when you're talking about interest rates that some are good, some are bad. But it looks to me like, and I, I think that this is probably the consensus out there, is that as a general rule, higher interest rates are almost indisputably good for banks. Yeah, on balance, a, a net positive. All right, so John, um, let's let's. I like to talk, um, and uh, I, I know you do sometimes too. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and institute uh, a a 30 second rule. We're gonna talk about three big banks. We're gonna talk about each of them in 30 seconds. Sound good? So that sounds great. All right, let's talk specifically. Uh, Bank of America, go. Awesome quarter, 4.3 billion dollars in net income to applicable to common stockholders. 50 percent better. Than the fourth quarters in the th- in the average of the fourth quarters in the three preceding years. That's great. They are boosted by trading revenue in particular. Going forward, they're going to earn a lot more money to the point we made about interest rates. Six hundred million dollars more a quarter this year, if all else is uh, staying equal. However, the one thing that remains out there for Bank of America is that it still needs to get its profitability up, but it's going in the right direction. Cool, J.P. Morgan, and uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and insert here. I mean, wow, just what a barn burner of a quarter for them. Yeah, monster, monster quarter. I mean, J.P. Morgan Chase earned $6.7 billion. Let me put this in perspective. If you look at earnings over the last 12 months of all the companies on the S&P 500, only one company in the United States earns more money. That's Apple. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing the true value of the franchise that CEO Jamie Dimon has built. And as a, he built it in large part during the financial crisis by buying a number of other banks for pennies on the dollar. We're really starting to see that value come to fruition. All right. And Citigroup. Yeah. So Citi had a really tough quarter. You know, if you just look at its top line revenue, it fell on a year of year basis. Anytime revenue falls on a year of year basis, that's not good. And particularly when you consider that Trady has that Citigroup has substantial trading operations mm-hmm. that also benefited from trading. So the fact that they benefited from that, but everything else fell, well, you know, wasn't a good sign. Now, the one thing I would say about Citi that shareholders should take note of is that the fourth quarter was the last time that it will report separately report the performance of Citi Holdings, which was the entity it created after the financial crisis and stuffed full of toxic non-core assets. So it just marks a demarcation point that between Citi and the financial crisis, that basically going forward, it will be difficult really to even tease out the impact of the financial crisis from Citi's uh, financial statements any longer. Yeah. And we'll get to Wells Fargo, the, the fallen angel of the big banks, in just a second. But first, uh, let's, uh, let's, before we get to our next topic, uh, let me be sure to thank pay, uh, Sure Payroll for supporting this podcast. Uh, if you're a small business owner, you know payroll can be a real headache. Small businesses across the country often end up paying hefty fines due to payroll-related oversights. And while the IRS levies billions of dollars of these fines every year, you can now protect your business and get rid of payroll tax complications with the help of Sure Payroll. Uh, sure Payroll has been around for over 15 years and is the first company to offer an entirely online payroll solution that is simple and can be used on any device 
in just three easy steps. The company will also file and pay your local, state, and federal taxes automatically so you can focus on managing your business. Sure Payroll is already serving a wide range of business types, everything from dentist offices to insurance agents, uh, charitable foundations, and more. So if you want to stop worrying about late fees and fines, just check out surepayroll.com fool and fill out the free quote form. Again, that is S-U-R-E, like sure, payroll.com slash fool. And now on to the second part of our program. Let's talk about Wells Fargo, the uh, f- sort of fallen angel of the big bank stocks. What happened with these guys? Yeah, Wells Fargo had a really, really tough quarter. Like I was telling you, it, it, it kind of reminded me of my first semester in college where <laughs> it's like, I mean, you know, I still had a pretty good quarter, but it was pretty messy or pretty, you know, good semester, but it was pretty messy when you look at when you looked at all the details. In fact, my right. parents probably didn't know too much about this. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, you know, I mean, Wells Fargo, it, it just it struggled in the quarter because, you know, you know, we saw that scandal come out and that just it really, really impacted its top and bottom lines. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, let, let's face it, you know, reduced credit card and checking account deposits, that's going to be a problem long term. Um, and then kind of all of that work that they're having to do, sort of trying to trying to respond to everything that's happened. And, and I, I guess let's go ahead and take a step back um, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with kind of what's gone on with Wells Fargo over the last six months. Yeah. So in September, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau came out and revealed that Wells Fargo employees in its branches had been opening fake accounts for customers in order to boost Wells Fargo's cross-sell ratio. And if, you know, on the individual basis, when you're looking at the bankers who are doing it, it was in order to meet um, their sales quota, that they, you know, these really high sales quotas that they were obligated to meet in order to win bonuses and also to keep their jobs. So that came out. And then a month later, or later in that month, the OCC, which is the Office of the Control of the Currency, which is the primary regulator for national banks, it's it because of the scandal. It is now requiring Wells Fargo to seek regulatory approval for any changes in officers and directors. Which, when you think about, like, wow, I mean, like a company can't even you know hire and fire people, you know, the main people anymore without the regulators regulators weighing in on it. That is a, that's a pretty stiff penalty. Right. Then later in the quarter in December, the Federal Reserve came in and said that Wells Fargo had, had, had messed up on this really important uh, financial submission that all the big banks have to submit each year. And as a result of it being the only large bank in the United States to mess up on that, it can't expand internationally without uh, regulatory approval, and it also can't make acquisitions without uh, regulatory approval. And then kind of the, the icing on the cake, if you will, what a horrible cake it would be to eat, but if, you know, the icing is <laughs> that there are all these ongoing investigations into Wells Fargo. Uh, the one that we know for sure is going on is being uh, run by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, that is looking into whether Wells Fargo retaliated against employees who tried to bring that sales, that sales scandal to light over the past few years as it was happening. And then when they did bring it to the attention of their supervisors, it is alleged, and by many, many employees in the media over the past few months, that uh, they were either fired or faced some sort of adverse employment action as a result of, of bringing it to light. Yeah, it just just a... a- as you put it, a multi-layered cake of just bad stuff going on. Um, so yeah, that's 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 pretty much the Wells story in a nutshell. Um, so let's let's go ahead and widen back out 
you know, going forward over the next couple of quarters, over the rest of 2017 even, what are the major things folks should be watching for across big banks? So the major things you're going to want to be watching are, I, I would say that you're going to want to watch for sure the direction of interest rates. Mm-hmm. So when the Federal Reserve met in December, they raised interest rate, the short-term interest rates, the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points. But they also said that, look, a plurality of members on that committee thinks that they will raise interest rates three more times this year. And to put that in perspective, the Fed has only increased rates twice since the financial crisis eight years ago. So that would be a huge boost to banks if that were to come to fruition. The other thing to listen and watch for are the language coming out of the the presidential administration about what steps they are going to take on the regulatory front and what impacts that will have on banks. As I'm looking at it, it looks like if these regulations, and just today, Trump came out and said that they're going to decrease regulations by, and I don't know how you quantify this, but by decrease regulation in the United States by 75%. Well, if they do that in the bank industry, which is one of the most heavily regulated industries in the United States, I mean, banks are going to earn more revenue, it's, they're going to have lower compliance costs, and their profitabilities are just going to soar. And uh, then speaking, you know, thinking about, um, you know, when it comes down to it, we're, in, we're an investing podcast. So if you had to pick one, one of the big four that we talked about today, so that's Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan. If you had to pick one right now uh, as your favorite bank, uh, favorite big bank stock, which would it be? I would have to say that my favorite big bank stock. So it, it's tempting to say that like a Citigroup is. Because it's value, you know, the value of its stock so is so low, yeah. exactly. But the problem with Citigroup is that, you know, and we kind of detailed this earlier in the show, is that, you know, it, it is going to struggle um, going forward, particularly if the, if the, again, to get back to the policy question, if the presidential administration goes in a protectionist direction, because Citigroup is such a, a internationally focused banks, that could really impact it. So. Even though Citigroup is the cheapest, I don't think that's the direction that I would go in as an investor. The direction I would go in as an investor at this point is J.P. Morgan Chase. And again, kind of to the point we made earlier, it, it really because that value of that franchise is just if as these interest rates come up and assuming that they in fact do, the value of that franchise is just going to really come through. And it is now, as of, as of, as of the fourth quarter, the most profitable multi-trillion dollar bank in the quarter. And going forward, I just don't see that, that trend abating at all. Good thing to uh, good thing to end on. Always like to end on a high note. Uh, well, listeners, that does it for the this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at at MF Industry Focus. Um, I can tell you the, the reason uh, those of you who are uh, listening from Friday and saying, wow, you know, Michael seems to be on here a lot. Um, you know, Friday, we uh, we had gotten uh, some listener questions uh, on the tech show about something, um, you know, Dylan Lewis and I had been talking about how we invested and somebody wanted us to do an episode specifically on how we thought about investing in stocks and we were happy to oblige. So drop us a note, uh, shoot us a tweet. Uh, we love to hear from our listeners. Uh, if you're looking for more of our stuff, of course, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review. Uh, it always makes it helps us make sure that we can get our message out to more people. Um, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For John Maxfield, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.